Elaine, this morning, uh, turned my attention to something that, that kind of, well, it did amaze me. Do you know what the, the fastest, where the fastest growing church in the world is today? This is from Operation World recently. The fastest growing church in the day, today, in the world today, is actually in Iran. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that you know, 20 years ago, or maybe more, 30 years ago, Christians were basically thrown out, missionaries were thrown out of Iran. There was only just a very few believers. And yet over the last 20 years, as those believers have shared their faith in the face of persecution, and as many people in the Muslim world are turning away from Islam, because they are, because they're as horrified by a lot of this violence as we are, the church is growing, and there's been more people saved in Iran, brought to faith in Jesus in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries. And do you know where the second fastest growing church in the world is? It's actually in Afghanistan. It's amazing what God is doing. We see all the different headlines, and I'll be touching on them in a little while, but we don't always get the reports of the other side, the things that are happening that God's doing. We hear a lot about the evil that men are doing, but we don't hear a lot about what God is doing, still doing, in the midst of that. So let's just come and pray as we come to God's word. Father, we just want to ask that, Lord, as we look at this psalm and the teaching that it gives, that our hearts will be open, that we'll be open to, to meet with you and to know that you're the God who's able to deal with our worries and our fears, our apprehension. You can deal with it all. Father, we just come to you now in faith and trust in Jesus' name. Amen. And let me just say that I think that as a nation and internationally as well on the world scene that we're living probably in the most uncertain times that have been known since the Second World War. For example, the effect of the Scottish referendum followed by the, the Brexit vote. This has taken us to the, the place where two or three years ago, while there might have been the odd grumbling, yet basically we're, we're pretty you know, okay, we're getting on fairly well together as a nation, to the point where I've never known this United Kingdom to be more disunited than it is at the moment. And the world scene, well, since that horrific attack in Nice on July the 14th, there have been five terrorist attacks in Germany within a matter of days, varying in the number of those killed, but all in their own different way, horrific. With this culminating on Tuesday, with the obscenity of an 86-year-old priest having his throat slit in a church in Normandy. Do you know how ISIS announced this on their website? ISIS soldiers carry out crusader killing. Now, I've read outrageous examples of spin before, but as the description of the murder of an unarmed 86-year-old by two men. I think that really does beat them all. As a result, though, of events like this, horrific, random acts of violence happening now almost on our doorstep, people today are worried and they are afraid, not just about what might happen today or, or, or tomorrow, but as we look further forward in the mid to long term, where, what, is our world heading towards? Many people today find it difficult, very difficult to be optimistic about the kind of world in the future children 
like Ethan, will inherit. But you see, for those of us here who are Christians, there's an extra dimension thrown into all of this in that as we feel worried, as we feel a sense of fear and apprehension as we look into the future, well, we feel shamed by this. That what we feel, and let's be honest, many Christians like the rest of our society do feel this way at the moment, that this demonstrates a lack of faith. That by feeling as we do, we're letting God and, and letting our faith down. Well, you know, maybe it shouldn't be like this. And maybe it wouldn't be like this if we were perfect people living in a perfect world. But it's not and we're not. We are fallible imperfect people living in a sinful fallen world we are the people we are and some of us because of our nature and our background our temperament are going to worry and God knows that God understands that and he still loves us and accepts us and works with us you see what really matters is not the fact that we worry or are afraid but what matters is how we deal with our worry and fear. That's what matters. And I firmly believe that if instead of sitting around bemoaning the fact that we believe maybe that our fear and worry shows a lack of faith and trust in God, that instead, if instead of this we rather work through this with the Lord, then I believe that this very experience can be a spur to spiritual growth and maturity. Because I tell you, no experience is wasted with God. No experience. If we turn to God in it, no experience is wasted. Someone I read said here, there are some super spiritual types who want to deny that. Didn't Jesus rebuke his disciples for their worried frown? Didn't he chasten them by the example of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field for their pointless fretting? Of course he did. But, if you think about it, the mere fact that he asks in that famous passage, why do you worry, is a clear example of the fact that he knew we would suffer from anxiety. It may be incongruous or seem incongruous for a Christian to worry, but there is nothing about being a Christian that immunizes a person against the experience of anxiety. If there were, Jesus would never have had to bother talking about it. The truth is, Christians do battle with worry, just as everybody else does. You see, it's not that we can't worry, because we can and we do. The difference for the believer is that God's resources made available to us through faith in Jesus Christ enable us to deal with, enable us to overcome our worry and fear. But how well all of this, that believers can worry and can be afraid, but that God can give us the victory over this, how well this is underlined here and illustrated by the example of David in Psalm 55. Now, we can't be precisely sure. We can't be sure just what the situation was that, that caused David such concern. But from what he says about gossip, violence, threats, and lies, and from the remarks that he makes about the, in, the one who is the instigator of this, being a man like myself, basically then, my equal, 
Plus verse 13 there, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed close fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of the Lord. From all of this, put it all together and it would seem that the likeliest situation is that recorded in 2 Samuel. Where Ahithophel, David's trusted advisor, and also Absalom, his son, conspired together to seek to kill David and remove him from power. But you know, if we can't be precisely sure just what the situation was, what we can be sure of is what it produced. And that is the whole seething mass of emotions that we find here in Psalm 55. In fact, the way that David bounces about here from sorrow to anger, panic to faith, this has led some liberal writers to conclude that, that this isn't one psalm, but rather it's a, a number of original psalms that have all been joined together, linked together into the psalm that we have. They argue that this is so because they say that this psalm lacks a common thread, a thread because there's no sense of logical progression. Now, my response to this is that these people need to get out of their offices in their nice, cozy universities. And they need to see life as it actually is for many people. You see, this is what life is like for people, even for people of faith, under real pressure and stress. They do often bounce from one emotion to the other. There are moments when they're illogical, as well as those moments where they emerge for a moment to cry out their faith. Why David tells us, here at the beginning of the psalm, where he's at, the way he's thinking and feeling. Verse 2, my thoughts trouble me and I am distraught. And you see, that's what the rest of the psalm here is. Not some clinical textbook poem written by a man. But rather it's the honest sharing of a distraught and a troubled yet man of faith as he seeks to apply his faith, to live out his faith in the terrible life circumstance he finds himself in. And how did David do this then? How was he able to deal with this situation? To end this horrific situation, live out his faith? Quite simply, I believe, through prayer. Prayer was David's secret. David brought his worry, his fear, his concerns, he brought them out into the open and then dealt with them by prayer. Verse 1, listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my prayer. So prayer is the key then to understanding the psalm and to living out what it teaches and what we're now going to do then is, by, is just to focus in on how in this psalm, David dealt with his worry and all its various different components. And we're looking firstly at how he dealt with fear, which is the basis of worry. Because you see, it is fear that almost inevitably forms the basis of our worry. And certainly that was the case for David. Verse 2 to 5, my thoughts trouble me. And I am distraught at the voice of my enemy, at the stairs of the wicked. For they bring down suffering upon me and revile me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death 
assail me. Fear and trembling, horror has overwhelmed me. Now let's be clear. This isn't just an attack of nerves. Now this is a man standing on the verge of total, absolute breakdown. This is a man suffering from what the psychiatrists, I believe, call an acute anxiety attack. All the classic symptoms are there. Mental confusion, that racing, unsettled mind, that inability to be able to to concentrate in any way. My thoughts trouble me. Emotional torment, as in verse 4 he says, my heart is in anguish within me. Well, that's actually a pretty much dressed up translation because what David literally says there is my heart writhes in my guts. It's not a pretty picture. But I know it certainly communicates the idea of someone who's totally twisted up, who's knotted up inside. A man who's been totally devastated by being betrayed by those who he loved and trusted most. With all of this leading to David living life constantly, every moment, on the edge. To a sense of paranoia. As if nobody is his friend. Nobody can be trusted. As if any minute the executioner's axe is about to fall. So he talks of the voice of the wicked, the stares of the wicked, and there's a a terrible fear here of an imminent, awful, violent death. Verse 4, the terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Now you see, David's initial reaction here is in a sense natural. He just wants to escape. He just wants to hide away, to run away, in fact, to fly away from a reality that he cannot bear to face. Verse 6, I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far away from the tempest and storm. Now, you know, escape in one form or another is the way that many of us deal with stress and with pressure in our lives. And and there are times, I believe, when that's fine, when that can be a a helpful emotional safety valve that helps us to cope just with those little stresses of day-to-day life. You know, maybe a night out somewhere, exercise, away at the gym, as you can see, I do that often, or a hobby. And then there's that supposed grand exercise in escapism, a holiday. Well, personally, I actually feel that I need a rest after a holiday. But when we're in anything near, though, to the kind of situation David was here, when our fear and our anxiety approaches fever pitch, at that point, then there is the danger that escapism can take a decidedly wrong turn. And that happens when we don't want to escape temporarily. But it's not a matter of just standing back and drawing breath so that later we can get back on, rejoin the battle, get on with life. No, but rather, we want to escape permanently. We decide that we're going to opt out from the stress and the worry and the fear of life. We decide we're going to leave the battlefield altogether. You see, I believe this is what a lot of people today try to do through drink and drugs. 
They're afraid of various things in life. They're afraid of life itself, its challenges and responsibilities. And so they try to opt out. They try through drink and drugs to remove themselves in some way from a reality that scares them. With others, though, this is something that that unconsciously they deal with in a much more subtle way. You see, what they do is they try to deny their fear. They try to deny their anxiety. They try to push it right down deep into their subconscious. But what I want to say to you is that what we feel is part of us. It might not always be right, but it's part of us. So as we try to deny this rather than deal with it, then I believe we put ourselves in real danger. One writer that I I found puts it this way. He says, what happens when we repress anxiety and won't face up to it is that it corrodes our peace of mind like a kind of psychological acid. Some people get depressed. Some people become hypochondriacs. Some people develop irrational phobias or psychosomatic illness. You get it? Denial means danger. When there is real fear, real worry, real anxiety in your life, then it's a case of you maybe can try to run, but you cannot hide. Let's give David the credit he deserves because he realizes that. For though he expresses in verse 6 the longing that he might have the wings of a dove and fly away, yet he realizes that he isn't a dove, that he hasn't got wings, that he's a man who's got to stand and face his troubles. And the way he does this is, as we've said, through prayer. David deals with his fears by working through them in prayer. Now, I don't think this would always be easy for him. In fact, in in the kind of distracted and anxious state that he was in, I think it would have been very difficult at times for him to pray. And that, I believe, is why in verse 17 he says, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Now, for me, what that's talking about is disciplined prayer, of David having to discipline himself to pray. But you see, as he did so, as he forced himself, in a sense, to focus on God in prayer, finally then he met with God in a very wonderful way. And you see, in the, the New Testament, we find Paul, I think, saying something very, very similar. Where Paul says, That as we bring our fears, as we bring our worries and anxieties to God, that we will meet with Him and and He'll deal with them in a glorious way. Philippians 4, famous verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But how does this happen? How do we receive this peace? How do we find this peace? Well, I believe that the key to this, that the way into this, lies in something that I I once heard Peter Barber share with 
his usual simplicity and yet great perception many, many years ago. And this is what he said, that we've always got to seek to view the little things in life that we don't understand in the light of the big things that we do. So apply this. We're worried. We're afraid. We're confronted by a situation that we feel that we can't handle and that we can't see any way out of. What should we do? I believe we need to remember, and if we've never known him before, we need to realize that we have a God who is loving and all-powerful. That we have a God who loves us so much that in his son Jesus Christ, he became a man and died on that cross to pay the price of the sin that separates us from him. That we have a God who treasures us and who wants to use us for his glory. A God who will never, ever let us go. Let me tell you, I believe that as we remember these kind of things in prayer, then not perhaps always immediately, It can take time and it can take hard work depending on the depth of our need. But this kind of prayer, prayer with this kind of foundation opens our hearts to a deep ministry of the Holy Spirit. This deals with our worry, deals with our fear and allows the peace of God to come flooding into our hearts. That's the way I believe David dealt with the fear That was the basis of his worry. Let's move on though to look finally at how he dealt, and this is going to be briefer, with his anger. Anger which so often is the expression of worry. Because David, as you see, certainly was angry here. That comes through clearly in this psalm. For example, verse 9. Confuse the wicked, O Lord. Confound their speech. But particularly in verse 15. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive into the grave, for evil finds lodging among them. Now, I have to say here that I know that there are a number of Christians who've got all sorts of problems with this. Problems with the thought of it ever being right for a Christian to be angry. Problems with someone like David expressing himself here as he does. So let's just say a little bit then, first about God's anger and how that is expressed, and then a little bit about human anger, particularly that of believers. Now, as far as as God's anger is concerned, then I believe what we have to be very clear about is that God's anger is always righteous anger. God's anger is always anger at sin and anger at sin's consequences. Because a holy God, a God who's perfectly good and pure, This kind of God has to be angry. When instead of choosing to follow him, the God who made us and loves us, when instead we, mankind, choose rather to sin. That is to rebel against him and allow evil with all its terrible consequences to come in and to wreak havoc in our world. God has to be angry at sin. But how about the way God expresses that anger 
Lots of people have got great problems with the way that God's anger is expressed at times, and particularly in the Old Testament. The destruction of cities, the extermination of pagan peoples, etc. How do we justify this, they ask? How do we explain this? In this way. I believe what this tells us, this reaction of God, is just how serious, just how horrific how ugly sin, with all its consequences, actually is in God's eyes. That's how bad sin is. Now, we find this difficult uh, to take in because, to be honest, we're not a people at this time who take sin anything like as seriously as we should. We focus on love because we're comfortable with love. Love makes us feel good. I say to you, what we have to remember is that though our God is a God of infinite love, yet he is also at the same time a God of awesome holiness. So then should we think of those Old Testament examples, those incidents that we get a bit squeamish about, for example? Uh, Just one example here. What God, David asked God to do in in this psalm, to take his enemies alive to the grave, this is something that actually happened, that God did in Numbers 16.33 to a man called Korah and everyone who stood with him who'd opposed Moses. God did this. But should we think of these incidents as God's way, in a sense, of emphasizing then to his people in the early stages of their relationship with them, emphasizing to them the seriousness of sin, Would this then serve as an example to us now of how horrible sin is, how seriously he takes it, and so how seriously we in turn should take it? Well, I'm sure that in part, that's how we should understand these incidents. But you know, there's something else. There's something very, very important that I believe we need to take on board. And that is cross of Jesus Christ. The cross where Christ died to pay the price of our sin. You see, there Jesus died to deal with the offense that our sin causes to our holy God. There Jesus died to take upon himself the judgment, the anger, the wrath of God that our sin deserves. So you see, it's not that we've got two different gods or even two different revelations of God. You know, a a holy Old Testament God who gets angry at sin and hits out against it, and a loving New Testament God who just pours out his love upon us. It's not that. God is every bit as loving towards his people in the Old Testament as he is in the New. And he is every bit as holy in the New Testament and today, now, as he was in the Old Testament. And sin arouses his wrath every bit as much as it ever did. God, though, the big difference for us now is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what transforms our life today. It's because of the cross. It's because sin was atoned for at the cross. It's because of this that we see relatively little of the judgment of God, of God's anger against sin in our day. But what then about human anger? 
the kind of anger that, that David expresses here in this psalm. Well, let's be clear. The vast majority of our human anger isn't like God's anger. It's not righteous anger, holy anger, it's sin and its effects. No, rather, our human anger is much more often an expression of sin, of our human pride and our, our selfishness. You see, we get angry when we don't get the respect and recognition we think we deserve. We get angry when we don't get what we want, what we perceive as being our share, our rights. But I do believe that believers are capable of righteous anger. That it is possible for us, for God's people, to share in something of God's anger against sin and its effects. As we see, say, the poor exploited by the corrupt, the helpless brutalized by the violent. Now, of course, there's always a, a danger with anger at the human level in that there's nothing that's totally pure in this sinful world. And I believe that's why Paul in Ephesians 4, 26 counsels there, in your anger, do not sin. See, what Paul's warning us of there is that even if our anger is almost totally pure, righteous anger, yet even so, we still have to be on guard that we don't go on to express that anger in sinful ways by sinful actions. And you know, here in this psalm, I believe David gives us a clear example of righteous anger and of how anger in general terms should be expressed. Because you see here, David is threatened, is confronted, by sin. And though his prayers might seem to us to be violent and vengeful, yeah, I'd ask you to notice that he's not saying that this is what he's going to do. No, he's asking God to do this. And in the days he was living, in the Old Testament, as we've said, this was consistent with the way God had acted. So David then was angry at sin, but in his anger, he didn't sin. Rather, he brought his anger to God in prayer. And just a wee bit of a side note here, if you actually look at David's life story, what you find is that actually in David's actions and what he did in the way that he behaved towards his enemies, that as a man of power at that time, he was incredibly restrained. Just an example, when Saul was doing all in his power to kill David, David again and again spared Saul's life. And later when Absalom, the son who opposed him, and I believe who he is speaking about in this psalm, when Absalom was actually killed, when in a sense David's prayers were answered, well, 2 Samuel 18.33 shares David's reaction to that. Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. But what is David's example here? What does it teach us? That when worry leads to anger, then the best way to deal with that anger is through prayer. Now, some people here might say, well, you know, isn't this like what many psychiatrists seem to recommend? That, you know, they say that instead of repressing your anger, instead of trying to deny your anger, which results in your anger being turned in against yourself and causing all sorts of psychological problems, instead of that, they say, you should express your anger. And what they recommend is, you know, smash a few plates, batter a cushion, do a bit of screaming and shouting, and that way, vent your anger, get it out there. 
I want to say to you there's a, there's a vital difference in that these kind of techniques, it's been discovered by various research and studies, they don't actually deal with our anger in the sense of dissipating our anger. To the contrary, they actually inflame it. They increase it. But you see, what prayer does is it enables us to express our anger without fueling our anger. It allows us to bring our anger out into the open, to be honest, to vent it, and at the same time to have our anger dealt with as God ministers to us by the Spirit and then guides us as to how we can express our anger in positive, transformative ways. Now here, some might want to see this as, as contradicting, in a sense, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 54, about, about loving our enemies and praying for them. I don't see it in this way. I see this as complementary. That often we might start out expressing our anger in prayer and then finish by being led by God to pray for our enemies. Now put all this together though. Put it all together. And what does it tell us? That hiding, running away, trying to suppress our worry and our fear and our anger is never the answer. Trying to pretend that we're some imaginary super saint who rises above it all, that's never the answer. It's openness and honesty. It's open and honest prayer that puts us in the place where God can minister to us and then minister through us. As David says in verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Of course, there is that alternative. And I read the story once of a, a missionary in Kenya who gave a lift one day to a lady who was carrying a huge bundle of firewood on her head that was obviously very heavy. Now, Teresa's seen it, and I've actually seen that happening in Ethiopia, and what a bundle they can sometimes be. But he gave this woman a lift in the back of his truck. He was highly amused, though, when he looked in his mirror after she'd climbed on board to see that she was sitting there, but she was still carrying the bundle of wood on her head. That's foolishness. But you know, it's what we do as God's people. If we hide and suppress, hold on to our worry and fear and anger, instead of doing what we should, bringing it openly and honestly to our God in prayer. David again says, cast all your cares on the Lord. It worked for him. And it will work for us too. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you again today for your word. And for the way that it touches and addresses the real life situations that we are facing here and now. Lord, you know your people here. You know our worries. You know our fears. You know perhaps the anger that's there in our hearts. Lord, help us to deal with it in the way that we should. Help us not to deny it. Help us not to suppress it. Help us not to express it in sinful ways. But rather, may we bring it to you. 
that you might minister to us, deal with us, and guide us as to how we can live as your true disciples. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.